Welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 166. Tonight we are in John chapter 17. And when we arrive at the 17th chapter of John, it's a really significant portion of the gospel, the story, um, scripture at large. We call it Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it's divided if you have a version like the ESV or the NIV. You see the subheadings that kind of divide it into parts. But those are are clearly sections in this high priestly prayer of Christ that have meaning. Each one has meaning. So we'll take them separately. Um, When we say high priestly prayer, What we mean is that just as the high priest in the temple went to God on the behalf of the people, in this prayer, Jesus goes to God on his own behalf, on the behalf of his disciples, and on behalf of you and me, and and kind of fulfills that high priestly uh, role for all of us. So it's significant in that way. It's also very significant in that it's the longest prayer text that we have of anything Jesus prayed. Um, There are other times he prays brief prayers and, and we see bits and pieces of that. He teaches the disciples how to pray and that's, that's a longer section than most, but it's not nearly as long as this. And then there's this prayer in John chapter 17 that really is the best example that we have of how Jesus actually prayed. So it's really instructive and it's incredibly interesting in that vein alone. So it's important. It it means a great deal to us and, and it should. And we should be able to gather a lot of uh, instructive, guiding material from this prayer. So let's dive in. John chapter 17, I'm going to reread verse 1, even though we kind of tied up the last chapter with the first few words, because the disciples say, now we understand what you're saying. You're not speaking in riddles anymore. You're speaking clearly, and we believe. And at that point, Jesus turns his eyes to heaven. After Jesus said this, he turned his eyes toward heaven and prayed, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one, only, true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Father, the time has come, or literally, the hour has come. What hour is that? Well, it's the hour of his crucifixion. It's the hour of his sacrifice. 
It's that appointed time where he will fulfill the purpose for which he came into this world. It was the plan all along. The enemy doesn't know that. The kings of this earth, as the Bible says, don't know that. But Jesus knows. It's time. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Now the word glorify here can mean a couple of things. We talk about someone being glorified after they die. They've entered into the glory of heaven. They've become an eternal being instead of a temporal being, and that's glory. They have been glorified. That's not the only thing I think Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about bring glory through what I'm about to do so that what I'm about to do will bring glory to you. You see, he's he's really saying, Father, don't leave me at this point. Remind me that we're working together in this whole thing, that this is accomplishing a purpose, that it's your purpose, it's what you intended, what we intended when I first came. And I'll show you why I think that at the very end of this section. But I think Jesus is saying, Father, be close. Don't don't leave me alone here because I need you to make it through this. I will bring glory to you. Bring glory to me. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him authority over all people. Over which people? All people. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Who did God give him? All people. To whom did Jesus grant eternal life? All of them. All of all people. As we'd say in Oklahoma, all y'all. You see, the gift of eternal life is not selective. For God was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we have to be really careful, or it's it's easy to look at Scripture and say, well, everybody's saved then. Everybody will get eternal life. And, and once we say that, we can say really weird things like, well, God gave some to have eternal life in in hell and some to have eternal life in heaven. Well, that's not what the Bible says. I understand how people get there theologically, but it's not what the Bible says. Here, eternal life means a relationship with God. It means the salvation of God. You granted him, me, authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. The intention was to save the world, all the world. The gift of eternal life was for all the world. But it's not foisted upon the world. It's not forced upon people. It's not automatically credited to their account. It is already gifted to the entire world. I taught school for the last couple of years, and at Christmas time, I threw a little party 
for one of the groups that I directed at the school. 26 kids were in the group. And so a couple of the parents came to me and said, we'd like to bring cupcakes for the kids. How many should we make? Well, there are 26 kids in that activity. So I said 26. So they brought 30 just to be safe. Probably not a bad plan. I had 30 cupcakes. There were 26 kids enrolled and typically in attendance in that activity, but it was Christmas break. And some of the families in the school had already left to go snow skiing or get a head start on the way to grandma's house. So that day I only had 22 kids in the class and I had 30 cupcakes. They had provided enough plus some grace, right? Just like God provides salvation and then some grace. God over provides for you and I. He doesn't he doesn't chintz. He doesn't skimp. If, if there were 26 of us that need salvation, he makes enough salvation available that all of us could get saved and, and a couple could come back if they strayed away, right? All of us could come back if we strayed away. There's a lot of grace. So I had 30 cupcakes and 22 kids. And when the 22 had all had their cupcake, of course, there are some, especially among the boys, who say, well, what are you going to do with those extras? Can we have one of those? You see, the parents had provided enough cupcakes for everybody in the class to have one. But some of the kids didn't take one or didn't want one or just weren't there to get it. It's not quite a perfect analogy because we're all here on this earth. And, and truly, in this day and age, it almost has to be a conscious decision not to respond to Jesus Christ. Because at some point in a person's life, especially in the Western world, they're likely going to have the chance to hear the gospel of Christ. Although the other day, I saw an article. I think it was online. Oh, it was a Jeopardy question. That's what it was. It was a Jeopardy question about the most simple Old Testament storyline that that most of us would have heard on the flannel board in Sunday school. And and it was it was the entry level question, the $200 question, the easiest one of the bunch, and it was just to answer something about Noah. And and the people didn't know. They didn't know that Noah had built a boat, an ark. And and so the question went unanswered and, and the audience kind of nervously laughed that none of the three contestants knew that Noah built a boat. And I sat there thinking, how tragic is that? It's not the gospel, it's an Old Testament story and yet it's kind of fundamental to our belief system. How do three people from this country grow to be, I don't know, I would guess them to be around 35 to 40 and not know the story of Noah. The church has become really ineffective at its mission. So it's not shocking 
that God provides the promise of eternal life to everyone. There's enough room in heaven for everyone to come. Some aren't going to respond positively to the invitation. Some, tragically, may never hear the gospel in a way that that prompts them to respond to God. For whatever reason, even outright rebellion, some won't end up in heaven. It doesn't mean that eternal life hasn't been purchased for them. It doesn't mean that Christ, who had authority over all people, didn't accomplish providing eternal life for all of them. It's there. The question is, who will take it? Who will respond? I don't think it's a question of of choosing and not choosing, of God numbering us off one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Now ones you're going to heaven and twos you're not. That's not the kind of God I serve. And if that was the kind of God he is, I don't think anybody would want him, let alone need him. I don't think God plays favorites or or sorts people out and picks some and not the others. That's like some cruel fifth grade basketball trick where you pick sides and there's the one kid who's always the last one picked. How does that kid feel about himself? Or if there's enough kids, he's just left out. Is your God like that? Well, sure he's not. Eternal life was provided through Jesus Christ to whosoever would have it. To everyone. Even though God certainly knows everyone won't take it. You've given him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, in case you were wondering. This is eternal life. That they know you. The one and only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, to Jesus, it was impossible to know God without Jesus. He believed his mission was to come and show people God. He says over and over in the Gospel of John, you've seen the Father because you've seen me, and anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. This is eternal life, that they might know you. People ask me frequently, what do you think is the essence of salvation? What is truly required to be saved? Well, these are the words of Jesus' prayer. So I think that's fairly authoritative. This is eternal life. That they might know you. There's a story that Jesus tells in the Gospels where he says, On that day, many will come before me and say, Lord, Lord, Did we not do mighty miracles in your name? Do we not cast out demons? Do we not? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, the people that we know are people with whom we live in a relationship. If I live in a relationship with God, I know him. He knows me. 
and I'm perfectly comfortable for him to know me, even with all my warts and sins and faults and failures. Because he created me. He he factored in my stupidity when he called me to follow him. He wasn't looking for somebody to be flawless. He was looking for someone to live in a relationship. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. I, I try not to preach much while we do this podcast. I try not to poke at you too much. Just lay out the truth for you, lay out the word for you, and let the word work on you. But I can't go past this and not ask you, do you know him today, right now? Wherever you are, whatever you're doing while you listen, can you say with surety that you know the only true God and Christ whom he sent? Notice that Jesus doesn't leave himself out of this equation. He didn't simply come to show us God. He came to bring us to God. He came to live in a relationship with us where he could escort us to the Father. It's not just that they know you, the only true God, but that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That we would live in relationship with with the Godhead. He's already promised the disciples he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. It's really important that you see that Christ and God are on level footing, separate but the same. If you know one, you know the other. If you know one, you know them both. And that God's intention is that you live in relationship with the entirety of the Godhead the Trinity, as it were, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you don't know one part, portion, or person of the Godhead, you're missing something. And it should come naturally for each of us to know God in his fullness. But that salvation, to know him, Father, I've brought you glory on earth, by finishing the work you gave me to do. That work was to bring men to God, to make salvation by grace available to all of mankind. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, but he's saying to God, I finished the work you sent me to do. The last part I'm going to do, and it will bring you glory. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By him was everything created, and apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. He's completing the circle here. I've brought you glory by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now glorify me in your presence.
take me back to be with you. Glorify me on the throne at your right hand. Seat me in the place I left to come here. I mean, it's this crazy big picture of the fact that Jesus is aware of what he left to come to this earth. Because here he prays that it would be restored. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And the word for world there means the universe, the created order. When it was, when it was just you and me, take me back to that place. Restore to me my place at your side. Would it have been hard to go through what Jesus went through? Absolutely. How did he get through it? He knows where he's going back to. He knows what he is returning to have. He knows his place is at the right hand of the Father. He just has to see this through about 48 more hours and he's there. And, and it is this assurance for which he is praying that's going to get him through that time. It's this vision that he's asking God to, to keep before him the whole time that's going to get him through the trial, the crucifixion, that whole mess. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And the Bible says that Jesus is the promise. He's the first fruit of resurrection. He's the promise that where he is is where we're going to be. In that same place of glory, in the presence of God the Father, he's prepared us a spot. I hope you'll go into your day and bear in mind that God has made eternal life available to everyone. Whosoever will means whoever will respond. Our calling is to offer that free gift to anybody who will listen. It's not our responsibility to save them. That job of Savior is already taken. It's not our place to judge them. The job of judge is already taken. It's our place to love them and let them know that the free gift of eternal life is available to them. No matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter how they've screwed up their life, whether or not they've ever accepted that free gift before and have forsaken it. Can you lose your salvation? I don't know. It's not my problem. I sure know that I see people who look like they have. And what those people need from me is love and the assurance that nothing in this world can take away the free gift of God's salvation and its availability to you. Nothing. It only requires your acceptance. 
It only requires you asking to have it, accepting it. What a beautiful thing. Let's go out into the world today and look for every opportunity to share that assurance with the people we see.